This episode of Fried Egg Stories is brought to you by the U.S. Open Victory Club. So to celebrate the upcoming U.S. Open week, the Victory Club has teamed up with the Fried Egg to give away four ticket packages. Each of these has two tickets for Saturday and Sunday at the 121st U.S. Open at Torrey Pines in 2021. The Victory Club is the official fan club for U.S. Open fans. Membership is free, again, free, and you'll get access to exclusive U.S. Open content, virtual fan experiences, offers and discounts, and events at the championship and throughout the year. So to enter the sweepstakes, join the Victory Club at usopen.com slash victoryclub. Complete your profile and answer podcast to the question, how did you hear about the Victory Club? Again, that's usopen.com slash victoryclub. The fried egg requires a different technique. What you need to do is actually square the face so it'll dig down underneath that bad lie and propel that ball right out onto the green. Here's the thing. Playing out of a buried lie in a bunker is completely different than playing out of a nice, clean lie in a greenside bunker. You need to be aggressive on any shot, whether it's sitting cleanly or it's a uh, fried egg. Well, we've all faced it, the dreaded fried egg. Not to be feared, though, it's actually a pretty easy shot to hit. So are, are you recording on your on your Zoom? I am. Recorder? It is rolling. Okay, so if, if we could just get started with the with local rules. Okay. Do you want me to say local rules? Yes. Okay. Local rules. Do not take this book too seriously. It is about grown men, most of whom earn a living by swinging long sticks at small balls. In other words, it is about golf. And golf is neither a microcosm of, nor a metaphor for, life. My name's Jeremy Schapp. I host uh, a few shows at ESPN, Outside the Lines, and E60. And my father, Dick Schapp, wrote a book about the 1974 U.S. Open at Wingfoot. The name of the book has become synonymous with not only that tournament, but also with the course in which it was played. The name of the book was Massacre at Wingfoot. All right. Can you hear me? I can hear you. How are you doing? Okay. Well, let's see. I'm, I'm Hale Irwin, longtime PGA Tour professional and uh, an advocate of great golf for everyone. So, <laughs> Wingfoot, 1974. Can you just tell me a little bit about seeing and playing that course for the first time that week? Oh, boy. Uh, you try to put some of those nightmares away sometimes. <laughs> this is Fried Egg Stories. I'm Garrett Morrison. Today, we go back to a time of wound core balls and persimmon-headed drivers. A time when the USGA handed the winner of its marquee event a check of $35,000 instead of $2 million. The 1974 U.S. Open, held at Winged Foot Golf Club, has become a touchstone in the debate over what a golf championship should be. Depending on your perspective, it's either the U.S. Open at its best or the U.S. Open at its worst. It's now known as the Massacre at Wingedfoot. That term comes from the classic book by Dick Schapp, from which his son Jeremy Schapp will be reading some passages in this episode. This week, the national championship returns to the West Course at Wingedfoot, 
so it feels like a good time to consider what it means for a tournament venue to be insanely difficult and what it takes to pass that kind of test. The attack upon winged foot is about to begin. 150 men, the most gifted golfers in the world, are about to assault the west course of the winged foot golf club. It's a lovely sight for a battle. 18 holes of gently rolling greenery in Mamaroneck, New York, half an hour's drive northeast of Manhattan, in the heart of affluent suburbia. By 1974, Wingfoot Golf Club was over 50 years old, and the West Course had already hosted two U.S. Opens and a U.S. Amateur. The credentials of this A.W. Tillinghast design were well established. So was it uh, Tillinghast's intention to build a tough championship course? A 100% from day one. You might be aware of the famous quote that he said, I was given a simple instruction, give us a man's sized course. This is Neil Regan. I'm the historian at Wingfoot Golf Club. And Neil is telling me about the first U.S. Open at Wingfoot West in 1929, when the course was only a few years old. Going into the tournament, the newspaper headlines had a theme. Bobby Jones thinks it's going to be a great driving contest. Wingfoot is called the most difficult course ever chosen. This is the week before the U.S. Open, not the week after. During the championship, the writer O.B. Keeler was on the grounds. O.B. Keeler, you know, O.B. Keeler was Bobby Jones' best friend and biographer. With him in the gallery was A.W. Tillinghast. They, they met on the course and they talked and they watched a lot of golfers. And he had a classic short article about it. He says one of the most deeply interested spectators was uh, Mr. A.W. Tillinghast, a distinguished-looking gentleman with a carefully waxed mustache who was to be seen in all parts of the golf course at all times, but not at the same time, but something very much like omnipresence. Tillinghast, it seems, did a great deal of talking. They say it's a tough course, he said to me, but you will notice that the scores of par are being made. Not too frequently, it's true. The man who scores par at Wingfoot will have shot par golf if you know what I mean. Tillinghast's rejoinder to one spectator's comment was a bit of a classic. The spectator said, they're having a bit of trouble with your golf course. I saw one fellow take three strokes in the same bunker, and Tillinghast said, possibly the trouble isn't with the bunkers. <laughs> After 72 holes, Bobby Jones and Al Espinoza were tied at six over. The next day, Jones beat Espinoza in a 36-hole playoff by 23 strokes. The greatest golfer of the era had won in dramatic fashion, but not everyone was happy with the first winged foot open. After the open, one newspaper columnist wrote a very long article saying it was too tricky, it was too difficult for them. They would hit the fairway and have to hit over a bunker. And when they got on the green, they had undulations on the green. It wasn't like other courses. There were many other articles in the newspapers about how difficult it was, how it was called the hardest course in the country. So yes, its reputation was there from day one. One thing I've heard is that the 1973 U.S. Open, where Johnny Miller shot 63 in the final round, famously, um, had some influence on the severity of the setup at Wingfoot. Do you think there's some truth to that? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Mark Mulvoy was at Wingfoot in 1974. Yep. My name is, uh, this is Mark Mulvoy. Uh, in 1974, I was one of the golf writers for Sports Illustrated while behind Dan Jenkins. And he heard that the USGA was determined not to give up 
another 63. And they're not going to do that again. Well, you know, hey, I can go set up Wingfoot tomorrow myself where no one's going to break 300. <laughs> yeah. I'm serious. You know what I mean? 300. On the eve of the 1974 U.S. Open, winged foot is a sterner challenge than ever. The course has been lengthened, bunkers added, trees planted, all the little touches that please the USGA and chill the golfer who hopes to break or equal par. So what made the USGA setup of winged foot in 1974 so severe? Well, first, the course was playing as a par 70 of 6,921 yards, which wouldn't be long today, but back then? And this is 1974, before we really had the advance in technology and the, and the equipment. They played with balada balls. We have a golf ball that uh, doesn't go as far. They played with persimmon heads. We were using wooded-headed drivers. I would bet that at that time of that open in 74, the head of a driver was probably 150 or 60 cc's. Today it's 460. We don't have all the ingredients that today's players have in terms of technology. Men like Arnold Palmer, who was very long, had struggles reaching the 18th green in two. So it was a very long course for the day. Second, if you missed fairways, you were in trouble. So it was a, a start with a relatively long golf course. Number two, the rough was deeper than any rough that I have ever played in my career. The rough was too high, you couldn't do anything out of the rough. The grass did grow long, very long. And when I say uh, I went off to the side of the second green, and I started pulling up grass, and it did not stop at about a foot. It kept going. Gary Player shanked a shot on the uh, 14th hole from the left rough. He shanked a shot across the fairway. But when you looked across Gary in the left rough there, you can almost not see Gary because the rough was so high, and Gary, of course, is uh, diminutive, to say the least. And third, once you managed to get to the green, your work was far from over. And once there, now you've got contours. And generally speaking, the greens might break a little bit from back to front, but there's a lot of contours in between. And then the greens were super fast for that era. 74 open at Wingfoot, you see balls trickling past the cup and going another five and six feet. And then a five or six foot putt at Wingfoot is never a straight putt, never. So I think most people, when they play Wingfoot, will be surprised at how well you have to read the greens to shoot any kind of acceptable score. So really, what made Wingfoot such an exacting test in 1974 was pretty simple. In order to have much of a chance at par, you had to hit the green in regulation. In order to have much of a chance at hitting the green in regulation, you had to drive it long and straight, hole after hole after hole, with no let up. Uh, but that's what we saw. We saw a course that was unrelenting. It was going to fight you at every turn. And if you made a birdie, it would get back at you. At every open, at least a dozen frustrated professionals vowed that they will never, never again play in a U.S. Open. Early in the week at Winged Foot, the contestants began to grumble. Uh, there was a lot of doom and gloom in the locker room after those first one or two rounds of practice because no one was coming back with a lot of confidence in being able to see very many birdies out there. It was a very, very difficult golf course, and it was palpable. And the target of the player's ire was a familiar one. Hidden behind these gripes is the belief, sometimes expressed and more often implied, 
that the USGA, which is the governing board of American amateur golf, is intent upon embarrassing the pros, upon spotlighting their flaws, not their flair. Part of the story here is that in 1974, competitive pros were just becoming independent. It was only five years before that they had broken away from the PGA of America. And they had a bitter battle. And the pros essentially ceded from the PGA and formed the PGA Tour. Well, I think that they were looking for some support from the USGA and didn't get it. So the fledgling PGA Tour was on its own and more and more inclined to view the USGA as an opponent. I mean, they just felt that, you know, it was too much of an amateur operation. Tuesday, 2.40 p.m. A pair of young pros are standing outside the clubhouse, engaged in a favorite pastime, complaining about the USGA. I wouldn't even play in a USGA event, says one of them, if it wasn't the Open. This would be a great tournament if the USGA didn't run it, says the other pro. Let me rephrase that. This is a great tournament in spite of the USGA. So what did you, what did you make of the complaints about the setup? Well, I might answer that question with a question. Let's say, do you hear from the players of note ever any complaining about the golf course? Probably not. You hear the players that complain the most are the ones that are least likely to win a golf tournament. So I, th- I think when you start putting barriers around what is acceptable to you, you've really locked yourself in to a non-competing position. And, and I remember after the second practice round saying to myself, if 70% of the field is checked out, I mean, you could just, there were players that just weren't capable and you could hear them talking. And if I can beat 30% field, you know, I might have a chance. Wednesday, 11.30 a.m., three USGA officials, each tucked in a blue blazer, each with a pipe tucked in his mouth, are holding a conference to explain the course to the press. What we try to do, says Sandy Tatum, is not to confound the best golfers in the world, but to find out who they are. And I didn't grow up in a country club environment. I grew up in a very small town in southeast Kansas. We had a little nine-hole sand green golf course. In fact, there's pictures over here on the wall of that little course. And when we moved to Colorado when I was 14, I caddied at a local municipal golf course. I'd make $2.75, and then I'd go pay the greens fees of $2.25. That'd leave me 50 cents to, to buy a hot dog or whatever it was. Hale Irwin quickly became an excellent golfer, but he ended up going to college for football. At the University of Colorado, he was an all-conference defensive back, and it was on the football field that he developed his mindset as a competitor. The, here was a case where playing college football, sort of undersized, under speed, uh, I mean, everything I did was under the norm, kind of gave me a little bit of a, uh, an, an attitude towards, you're not going to beat me. You, I may lose, but it won't be from lack of effort. He knew he had to play not only harder, but smarter. As you'll always hear, you, you, and perhaps, you know, sorry, you have to read your keys. And my keys were, generally speaking, the offensive linemen, the center and two guards. And most of the time, they will give away the play you know, just by their stance, the way they acted. And once you watch on film enough and then you get in the game and you see it firsthand, you start picking up little idiosyncrasies, whether it be the eyes might move 
or the head or the way the hand goes down on the ground or something that you pick up. You, you, you have to have those clues. And that's what I think I was good at was anticipating and, and recognizing those clues. In Wingfoot, Hale Irwin saw a big, fast offensive line. And I'm respectful of not only my opponent, but the opponent of this golf course. I'm respectful of that. And with that respect comes the recognition that I've got to pay attention to some of the details. You had to put the ball in the fairway. But that doesn't mean you hit an iron off the tee, because now you're left with such a long second shot, it just doubles up on how difficult that second shot becomes. So you got to hit fairways. You've got to hit greens and keep the ball under the hole, it does not matter. I'll trade a 30-foot or a 10-foot downhill putt for a 30-foot uphill putt every time. Just put the ball under the hole. Don't worry where the flag is. Uh, if the flag is 22 paces on and six from the right, so what? Let's hit it in the middle of the green. Okay, it's 20, let's just try to hit it 20. And you know, just find those areas in which to hit your ball. So I, I felt like for me, it that could give me a reward It'd throw me a bone that if I hit a shot that was on the green and I'm within 30 feet of the hole, hey, yeah, it's success. So that's just the way I kind of played my game. And, and I've always played my game. That's why I've never relied upon a caddy for all the advice that today's caddies seem to throw at their players. Oh, they put me to sleep. And I've got to play faster than that. I haven't got time to be written a bedtime story. <laughs> So by 1974, Hale Irwin was a 29-year-old pro with an NCAA championship and two wins at Harbortown to his name. But he brought a lot more than just that resume to the Winged Foot Open. He also brought experience with opponents much scarier than any golf course. And he brought a self-confidence rooted in self-reliance, rooted in a childhood of sand greens and 275 per loop. Are my talents any better than anybody else that walks out there on the grass? No. Does my confidence in myself, is that any less than Jack Nicholas would have? No. I, I have a belief in myself that what I'm doing for me is the proper thing to do. Of course, that's not to say that Hale Irwin was unaffected by the severity of Wingfoot. By the time we got to Thursday and they called your name on the first tee and you're thinking, oh no, here we go. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to post a score. <laughs> Thursday, 1.28 p.m. After driving into the rough, then hitting a 5-iron 20 feet above the first hole, Jack Nicklaus gently taps his putt toward the cup. The ball slips past and rolls down the incline, leaving Nicklaus a full 25-foot putt coming back. What an embarrassing way to start the opening, he mumbles. And word spread very quickly on the first day when Jack Nicklaus four-putted the first green. He putted it right off the green. You know, that's like wildfire. And now you get an idea of what you're in for. If you hadn't suspected already, now you know. So anyway, in the fourth hole, the pin was sort of in the center of the green, but right center, just in from the uh, uh, from the fringe. But Jack hit a beautiful iron in there, about oh, 10 or 15 feet right of the hole. Three putted that sucker. The best golfer in the world finished with a five over 75. 7 p.m., Jack Nicklaus comes into the press tent without complaints or excuses. The course didn't play any tougher than other open courses, Nicholas says. The greens are the course. You're scared of every putt. I wish we played a course like this every week. We'd learn how to putt. Later on Thursday, 
A motorist attempting to leave the Wingfoot Golf Club takes a wrong turn and accidentally drives across the first green. He does no damage at all. The green holds up like asphalt. No one broke par that first day. Gary Player held the solo lead after an opening 70, and three shots behind him, Hale Irwin was playing a steady game. So I, I thought for me, if I can go out and stay positive, even with a bogey, I know I'm going to make that, but I know others are going to make them too. So let's stay in the game. Forget what happened on the last, and this is something that should happen all the time, but forget about what you've just done. Let's think about what you have to do. On Friday, playing in the morning, Hale Irwin doesn't make many scores he has to forget. He finishes with a 70, and by the middle of the afternoon, holds the lead at plus three. One shot behind him are two 24-year-old Toms, Kite and Watson. Tied with Hale Irwin are Ray Floyd, Gary Player, and one other very familiar name. Friday, 5.36 p.m. As Arnold Palmer walks toward the 17th tee, a division of his troops begins to applaud. What did he just do, someone asks. I think he just breathed, a cynic replies. You're in the final group on, on Saturday, and in front of you is the pairing of Gary Player and Arnold Palmer. What do you remember of the atmosphere around that group ahead of you? What, what, was, the, what was the venue like at that time? Well, obviously, anytime you have Arnold Palmer in contention, it's going to create a lot of dynamics. Now, as a competitor, I like seeing that in front of me because if it's behind you, now it's running up on you all the time. If you're in it, you have to kind of concern yourself with what's going on around you. But when it's up in front of you, then it's, it, you're better. Saturday, you played, you played a great round of golf on Saturday. I played very well on Saturday, yes. Which was quite an accomplishment on that day. Saturday, 2.10 p.m., Dave Stockton comes out of the scorer's tent after adding up all 78 strokes. I can't believe people want to see the golf they're seeing here, he says. I know they want to see birdies, but the USGA doesn't want to see birdies. This course makes me feel like a fool. I'm exempt again next year, but I'm not going to play the Open. Dave Stockton did play the U.S. Open the next year, and the year after that, and each of the seven years after that. Anyway, on Saturday at Wingfoot, Stockton is hardly the only player to have trouble. Gary Player shoots 77, Ray Floyd shoots 78, and when Hale Irwin arrives on the 16th tee, he's three over on his round. And in front of him are Wingfoot's brutal closing holes. Well, number 16 for the members is a par five. And for us, it was a par four, and they moved the tee up maybe five yards. There, he hits a three iron to seven feet and holes the putt. Now, 17 is, uh, again, another one of those holes that's relatively straight away, quite narrow fairway. He rolls in a 20-footer for birdie. But then you've got the kick in the tail end, 18, where you think, where's a breather hole on this golf course? There is none. 448 yards, dogleg left, and a green guarded by deep bunkers and a massive false front. So if you were on the front of the green, it would roll off the front. The flag was on the... Uh, the left, maybe a little bit towards the front, and I'd hit my ball uh, just short and left to the green. At a, f let's just say a pitch shot that one doesn't want to have. <laughs> so I, I, okay, keep it under the hole. Don't pitch it long. Don't pitch. Keep it, you know, keep it under the hole. So I pitched it up there, five or six feet, pretty much under the hole, and made that. It was a great up and down, a true U.S. Open par. 
here I've had a really good finish. I've positioned myself well for the Sunday round, and I was glad to get that round over with. Going into Sunday's final round, Hale Irwin was two shots ahead of Arnold Palmer, and one behind young Tom Watson, who had posted a 69. At that point, Watson hadn't even won a regular PGA Tour event, but his talent was obvious. You could see this young man was going to be the next superstar. There was no doubt. He was still wet behind the ears, I guess, if you wish, in terms of competitive experience. But that it was going to, he was going to dry that off very quickly. But <clears throat> you know, as I'm thinking of the round, I'm thinking, okay, Arnold, still a very effective player. Maybe the twilight of his really competitive career, but still Arnold Palmer. Tom Watson, the new up-and-coming star. But it just comes boiling back to me. It comes boiling back to Hale Irwin and what he's going to do. Sunday, 1.23 p.m. I'm nervous, says Hale Irwin, but I'm not shaking with anticipation. You're playing for a national championship. So there's, there's greater pressures, there's greater, you just name it, it's there. You're one of the last ones to leave the locker room. You're one of the last ones to leave the practice area. 1.24 p.m. My only philosophy, says Tom Watson, is I like my position. So all of these things tell you that there is something important going on. And even if you try to close the door on all that, it's still there. 1.25 p.m. Hale Irwin closes his locker. Excuse me, gentlemen, he says. I have work to do. If you don't feel it, then why are you there? And I, I tried to accept that. I tried to embrace that because that, that is what competition's about. That's why you're there. 1.26 p.m. Tom Watson closes his locker. Do you like all the attention, someone asks? Watson nods. Yes, he says, I do. I'd like to give this kind of interview every week. I tried when I get to the first tee and now on the tee. You know, ta, ta, ta. Now you, you have to blank out. Now you have to get focused on where am I trying to get this ball? Now is the time to play golf and not go through all the what ifs. It's too late for that. On the front nine, Arnold Palmer's putter betrays him, and he goes from six to ten over. He's out of it. Behind him, walking to the ninth green, Tom Watson and Hale Irwin are tied at six over. 4.17 p.m. So could you tell me about that putt at nine? Well, uh, I forget how many lumps and bumps there were between me and the hole. Let's, let's call it 14 or 15. <laughs> from 35 feet away, over a ridge, Hale Irwin curls his putt into the cup. But there was a lot of go up a little hill, down another, up a little hill, and down to another. So, And as the ball falls, he breaks into a happy little dance. His first sign of emotion all day. So if you're fortunate enough to make a putt like that, okay, you had the skill set to do it. But maybe more importantly, you had the luck set to get a ball like that into the hole. 4.18 p.m. Hale Irwin's wife is beaming 1,500 miles away in Kirkwood, Missouri, near St. Louis, in their new home. Sally Jean Irwin is sitting next to packed crates and her sleeping two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Becky, watching the Open on television. Sally Jean is eight months pregnant, which explains why she's not at winged foot. Three weeks ago, Hale Irwin woke up one morning and told his wife he had just had a dream that he won the U.S. Open. As for Tom Watson, he misses his birdie putt on number nine and drops one shot back of Hale Irwin. 4.33 p.m. A spectator behind the 10th green points at Tom Watson, nods his head knowingly, and says he's choking. 
Meanwhile, another young, talented, but winless pro, Forrest Fesler, has clung to even par on his round, which means he's suddenly in contention. You have to think about what you're doing at this time. What Tom Watson does, he does. What Forrest Fesler does, he does. What Arnold Palmer, all of them. Let's worry about Hale Irwin's going to be doing. 4.52 p.m. Tom Watson hooks his tee shot on the 12th hole into the woods, and a spectator says, that's it for Watson. Standing on the 15th tee, Hale Irwin has a three-shot lead over Forrest Fesler. But within minutes, he's given one of those shots up. Well, I think, like anything, uh, there could have been a bit of nerves. Uh, but bear in mind that even if you're just playing this on a casual Saturday with your friends, these are hard golf holes. 5.41 p.m. On the 16th hole, Hale Irwin drives into the rough. And given the circumstances, are you going to hit that perfect, relaxed shot that you have with your buddy on Saturday playing for a dollar in Nassau? 5.44 p.m. Hale Irwin hits his second shot into a bunker on the right side of the green. No. You've got to factor in the nerves. You've got to factor in the anxiety. 5.47 p.m. From the bunker, Hale Irwin blasts to within eight feet of the pin on the 16th. He walks onto the green, sights his putt very carefully, and misses. He now has two straight bogeys, and he's seven over, only a stroke in front of Forrest Fesler. But mind you, I was the only one making those bogeys. Everybody else was making them as well. So it's not like, you're, well, I'm going to match your par with my par. No, he said, I'm going to match your bogey with my bogey. 5.52 p.m. Forrest Fesler misses his 15-foot attempt to save par on the 18th hole. As he comes off the green, he shakes his head. Man, this course really takes it out of you mentally, Fesler says. It just does things to your mind. But Hale Irwin still needs to stop the bleeding. And on his drive on 17... I just lost my legs and I got over it and I pulled it just into the left rough. So you're, you're in the rough on 17... Could you basically take me home from there? Well, again, when you're in the rough, you're not going to reach the green. And so I just took out a, I think it might have even been a four-wood, I think, and choked down on it. And I chopped it to where I had, I think my yard was like 102 yards or 103 yards. And again, I thought, don't hit it long. Don't hit it past the hole. And I hit a good shot, perhaps uh, 10 feet or so from the hole. Unfortunately, I got there and it was quite a left to right breaking putt. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, okay, we need to make this putt. 6.02 p.m. Hale Irwin lines up his 12-foot putt on 17. And a reporter kneeling behind him says he'll never make it. It breaks a foot. He makes the putt and breathes a deep sigh of relief. When that went in, that was such a big relief because now I can play the last hole. Not conservatively, not, you have to play it dynamically, let's put it that way. You have to put one shot in front of another. 6.04 p.m. Charged up equally by his putt on 17 and the huge gallery lining the 18th hole from tee to green, Hale Irwin sends his drive straight down the middle of the fairway. And so when I hit my drive right where I wanted to in the fairway, and then I could see the big board up at the green, and I did see where I had a two-shot lead. But now, don't hit it to the right cannot miss the green to the right and I've got 194 yards I believe it was winds a little off the left the green's setting up there a little bit it's a two iron shot today's people say what's a two iron nobody has a two iron in their bag how many pros carry a two iron 
you know, today's player might say, well, that's just a six iron. Well, guys, go back to where I was, break that two iron out of your bag and try and hit that shot. Well, not only was it a two iron, the club head was about the size of the ball. Anyway, I, I remember distinctly, all the things I've forgotten, I remember distinctly telling myself a nice smooth backswing, make sure you get the club set and eye on the ball. The instant there was contact, it was a solid contact. I knew it was a good shot. And so when I looked up and the ball was flying just a little bit left of the hole, the wind brought it right over the top of the flag. I knew then that uh, it was over. Irwin hits the two iron and the ball stops running 19 feet from the pin. As Irwin strides toward the green, he raises both hands above his head like a victorious boxer. The gallery booms out its applause and Irwin waves his visor. Irwin plays the 19-footer the way a champion should. He strokes the ball to within an inch of the cup. He taps in, and Hale Irwin is the 1974 United States Open champion. Hale Irwin finished with a score of 287, 7 over. Second place, Forrest Fesler, 9 over. And tied for fifth at 12 over, 44-year-old Arnold Palmer, and 24-year-old Tom Watson. Palmer would never again place that high in a major, whereas Watson would recover quickly from his Sunday collapse. The next year, he won the first of his five Open championships. But for now, he had failed the test that was winged foot in 1974, and Hale Irwin alone had passed. After I had won, you know, I remember thinking to myself in the, <clears throat> the confines of, of my room that evening, that I'd finally achieve what I've been trying to do, and that's to, to be a player on the international stage, to be successful in the world of golf. And to do that, you have to establish yourself as a winner in major championships. And, and I'd, uh, I had achieved my goal. Hale Irwin continued to do well at U.S. Opens. He won two more, and he went on to become one of the best older golfers of all time, winning 45 tournaments and seven majors on the senior tour. He's now 75, and just recently... He gave up the competitive game. At 75 years old, I don't know as I'm, I can go out there and play with the same intensity that I once did because you need intensity. In your own way, you need that because if you don't have it, I don't care what you're in, the job you have, if you don't attack it with the intensity, if you just back off of that and say, well, you know, I think I'll let that fly this morning. I'll get that later. Later it comes and you don't do it. That's the signal. It's time to step back big time because unless you can deal with that in between and that, well, he's good, but not like he used to be. I, I, that's not me. He still follows golf and he sees that since 1974, PGA Tour players have gained a great deal more power, that their complaints about courses and setups carry a great deal more weight. And he hears what some of them have been saying about U.S. Open venues like, say, Shinnecock Hills in 2017. I thought we could be on the edge, but uh, we've surpassed it. Unfortunately, uh, they've lost the golf course. I think we're, we're making a, a fatal mistake if, if we don't distinguish the good from the average, or the best from the good. The delineation amongst the, the best and the others generally takes place with a difficult golf course. Do the best players complain about the conditions? No. I think that when you... Start complaining about the conditions of the golf course. Now you're setting yourself up for failure because now you're admitting, I can't play that golf course. 
And one of the things as we talk here, so 46 years later about Wingfoot, it still carries the, the prestige. It still carries the, the talk. What tournament or what club wouldn't want that? And, and I, I don't buy into this. Let's treat the players with, let's pamper them. Let's use the kid gloves because they're complaining. Sorry, I just, I don't go into it. I think the players of today hit the ball so far. And if they're that talented, they should be able to play any golf course, no matter how it's set up. As an organization or as a organizing committee or as a tournament venue, I would want my golf course to present itself with some teeth. So the best players in the world are tasked to play better golf. This was the 10th episode of Fried Egg Stories. It was produced and hosted by me, Garrett Morrison, with editing and engineering by Jay Virick and transcript assistance from Jay Fischel. Our executive producer is Andy Johnson. Many thanks to Neil Regan, Mark Mulvoy, Jeremy Schapp, Hale Irwin, and of course to you for listening. You know, it was maybe a couple of stretches, a little push-up. He never did any serious exercise. These, yeah? What? Hold on a minute. No problem. What? What's the word? Bagel? F-A-T-A-L. My wife's on some conference call. They're playing bridge or something. <laughs> she spells fatal. So you're, you're the anyway, household speller, uh, huh? Oh, yeah. Believe me. <laughs> they, should, they play bridge all friggin' day on this computer thing. All of her friends from Florida. Shit, it's unreal. Anyway, um...